0: Miley Cyrus finally achieved number one status on the Billboard charts with her 2013 single, Wrecking Ball. The video for which featured the former Disney child actor appearing nude atop the demolition equipment as it swung into action. It was a highlight moment for a young woman who was trying to find her place in the world, divorced from her Hannah Montana good girl image. She successfully managed to use this year of her life, introducing millions across the world to the concept of twerking. But not everyone approved. Upon proudly stating that her controversial video and actions were intended to invoke a modern Sinead O'Connor moment, the Irish singer who had infamously ripped up a picture of the Pope on SNL responded by warning Cyrus that she was being pimped stating for the record that she was extremely concerned for those around you that have encouraged you that it is in any way cool to be naked and licking sledgehammers in your videos. She finished her portion of the feud with the thought of, please, in the future, say no when you are asked to prostitute yourself. Although it may not have been for everyone, the wrecking ball metaphor connected with fans of Miley. For even though it wasn't written by her, it was an easily identifiable metaphor to fans who knew that she was going through a breakup with her then fiance Liam Hemsworth. While the lyrics weren't particularly deep, it is a Miley Cyrus pop ballad after all, the words of, I put you high up in the sky, and now you're not coming down. It slowly turned, you let me burn, and now we're ashes on the ground. Do seem to have at least a slight but fully unintended connection to Joan of Arc. Joan came into Charles the Dolphin's life like a wrecking ball. The house of the Francs had internally decayed to the point that Paris was now controlled by their mortal enemies, the English. At Charles' lowest moment, the point where he is contemplating giving up everything that he has ever known and believed about his life and destiny, a 16-year-old peasant girl arrives in his life, ready to demolish everything in order to give France a chance to rebuild itself in its own traditional image. Joan will manage to elevate the dolphin to lofty heights. She promised to see him lawfully anointed as the true king of France, putting him, in the words of Miley Cyrus, high up in the sky, a position that in the history of the world he would never come down from. Ultimately, however, it was the Dauphin who would allow Joan's enemies to let her burn, resulting in her ashes being disposed of in the Seine River. It turned out that the Maid of Orleans' moment on top of the historical billboard charts was to be short-lived. She arrived promising a miracle in April of 1429, and was summarily tried for heresy and executed in May of 1431. Although that two-year period seemed short, her moment of fame happened to have lasted 15 months longer than Cyrus's marriage to Hemsworth. In this episode, we'll examine the wrecking ball that was Joan of Arc, and the effect that her dramatic entrance on the French scene had on that nation's long history. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is the third in a series of four regarding the warrior Joan of Arc. Episode 3 God's Wrecking Ball. Amazingly, I'm not the only one who sought out some form of connection between the party in the USA hitmaker and the Maid of Orleans. Epic rap battles in history squared the two individuals off in a season three fight. Upon discovery, I have to say that Miley doesn't come off too well, claiming that she is all twerk as well as the hottest thing since Britney, before the satirical version of herself points out that she is getting lifted on that Molly while Joan's getting lifted on a stake. But before we can get to Joan's inglorious and painful end, we have to examine her beginnings and the events that resulted in a young teenage girl becoming the number one threat to a country who would soon actively begin its largely successful efforts to take over the world. Joan was born in Don Remy, a small village nearly 200 miles east of Paris. Her family home remains standing as a museum and tourist attraction for the small town. Her parents were sheep farmers. Along with her four brothers and sisters, she lived on a plot of land that was roughly 50 acres in size. At this point in her life, she still went by Jeanette rather than Joan. The family was heavily involved in their small community, with her father serving as a village official in addition to regularly attending church. The community would later refer to the family as respectable, and identified Joan as a dutiful child who was well-behaved, pious, and modest. They recalled to the chroniclers that she was a hard worker who spun wool with her mother and guided the plow with her father. She was particularly inclined to think of God during the regular toll of the church bells, which are rung by their own sort of wrecking ball mechanism. Throughout her life, Joan would stop and pray at the ring of the church bells. Her local church warden, the man in charge of sounding the call to prayer, even recalls being scolded by the young lass whenever he had forgotten to ring the bells. Sweetly, she promised to bring him cakes, if he would only be more diligent about the task. I am not here to determine or even speculate whether or not Joan was truly sent by God. Whether or not her visions were real or not is a long and winding diversion from her story. For a historian, it is enough to know that Joan believed that they were real and acted upon them as if they were genuine. Acting upon her beliefs set off a series of reactions that resulted fundamentally in the changing of the course of world history. If not for the sudden appearance of Joan of Arc on the French geopolitical stage, it is likely that English France would have survived long enough to have truly merged and become one nation, leading to the likelihood that French Quebec would have just been known as Quebec. Okay, perhaps there are larger ramifications, particularly with the roles that the French and English played in the Exploration Age, the Age of Absolutism, Imperialism, and the formulation of today's modern world. What would have been different if the French Revolutionary forces had overthrown King George, rather than Louis? Who would have fought Napoleon if not for his stubborn enemy, Lord Wellington? Joan had been born during the Hundred Years' War, which, by the time her portion of the story arrived, had already been ongoing for nearly 90 years. The war mostly consumed the northern portions of the Frankish Kingdom. But Domremy had begun to feel the effects of war when she turned seven as unaligned brigands began to raid the village. Matters turned for the worse when the Burgundy forces of Duke Philip set fire to the town and its crops in 1428. It was during this time that Joan began to experience visions. At her trial, she marked her first otherworldly experience as occurring sometime during her thirteenth year on earth. The first spiritual apparition to visit her was St. Michael, appearing as a, quote, good-looking gentleman. Later, she claimed to have heard the voices of St. Catherine and Margaret. Their voices regularly came to her after the ringing of church bells which in part explains her devotion to prayer each and every time she heard the bells toll. Joan describes her first encounter by telling the court that, when I was 13, I had a voice from God to help me to govern myself. The first time I was terrified. The voice came to me about noon. It was summer and I was in my father's garden. I saw it many times before I knew it was St. Michael. He was not alone, but duly attended by heavenly angels. He told me, St. Catherine of Alexandria and St. Margaret of Antioch would come to me, and I must follow their counsel, that they were appointed to guide and counsel me in what I had to do, and that I must believe what they would tell me, for it was at our Lord's command." We talked a little bit about St. Michael the Archangel in our prior episode. This Old Testament angel was a warrior first and foremost, one of God's strongest swords against the devil, a champion against evil. To the French, in the midst of 80-plus years of war, there would have been no greater evil manifested in the physical world than the English. St. Catherine of Alexandria is a more traditional Catholic saint, meaning that she was a human who was deemed by the church to have achieved multiple miracles in order to claim her otherworldly status. She was born around the year 287 in Alexandria, Egypt, and converted to Christianity after supposedly receiving a vision regarding Jesus and his mother Mary. Her conversion was a problem in the Roman-ruled territory, as the Caesars had long succumbed to their own propaganda regarding their own divinity. The Roman in charge at the time was named Maximilian, and rather than immediately executing Catherine, who had noble birth status, he forced her to publicly debate her newfound faith. Her opponents were a team consisting of the top Roman theologians and scholars. According to the Catholic tradition, St. Catherine was moved by the Holy Spirit and spoke so eloquently about her new belief that several audience members immediately converted, only to then be executed by Maximilian. Catherine's propensity to speak continued throughout her subsequent imprisonment, and she is even said to have managed to convert the emperor's wife after a visit to the so-called witch woman. Even under the pressure of torture, Catherine refused to recant her faith or stop her persistent efforts directed towards converting her jailers. She is perhaps history's earliest adopter of the modern-day feminist motto of, Nevertheless, she persisted. Her final miracle was to break the wheel that Maximilian had ordered as the device for her execution. According to tradition, the torture device shattered upon a touch from the prisoner. This supposed divine intervention failed to save Catherine's life, however, as the Romans proceeded to just chop off her head rather than waiting for the arrival of another wheel. Much less is known about Margaret of Antioch. Even the Catholic Church is unable to precisely identify her life's correct time period. Her story is filled with larger-than-life events, much in the same way of St. Michael. Of course, he was the archangel. Margaret was just a virgin woman. She was believed to have been born the daughter of a pagan priest. After her conversion, she was shunned and faced unwanted and inappropriate sexual advances by a government official, before she was eventually imprisoned, tortured, and executed. During her captivity, legends grew from a supposed encounter with the devil in the form of a dragon who had swallowed her whole. Her survival only occurred because of the Christian cross that was on her person at the moment of her digestion. She used the cross to irritate the dragon's throat to such an extent that Satan was forced to spit out Margaret. Today, she remains the patroness of childbirth, which I'm not quite sure whether the fact that she was spit out of the throat of a dragon or that she died a virgin is the more ironic aspect of that part of her job. As was true for Catherine, it was mere men that finished the job that the devil had begun, first attempting to burn her at the stake, then proceeding in an attempt to drown her, before they finally succeeded in carrying out their sentence by chopping off her head. Joan wasn't a scholar or the daughter of religious fanatics, but she was well versed in the faith. Therefore, it is possible that she would have known the names of each of these religious saints. Michael and Margaret's story are both incredibly memorable, mainly due to their inclusion of dragons. Margaret's story was particularly famous, and her exploits were regularly retold during this era. Catherine's story seems to fit well with what happened to Joan at the end, particularly her ability to speak eloquently in her own defense at trial, as well as her stubborn defiance of her enemies. It is important to note that Joan, despite the fact that she was illiterate and young, wasn't stupid by any means. She was just unschooled. The mind of Joan of Arc was a powerful weapon and one that she herself unfortunately devalued in favor of her sword arm. Rather than accepting the accolades that were heaped upon her, she credited nearly all of her own actions by declaring that she had merely been following the voices that she proclaimed had been sent by God. At first, the voices in her head merely encouraged her to be a good girl, obey her parents, and to attend church. Around 1428, however, the voices, particularly the one attributed to St. Michael, began to direct her to more specific outcomes. For instance, she claims to have been ordered to go to Robert de Baldrecourt of Valacours, who lived in a town 12 miles to the north of her home. Broadrecourt was a garrison commander, and according to St. Michael, he would be the one to provide her with a military escort to meet the uncrowned Dauphin. Joan, having learned to obey the voices, set off with just her uncle, who became one of her first disciples, despite the fact that she was just a 16-year-old girl. Upon reaching her destination, she informed Baudricourt matter-of-factly that I have come to you on the part of my Lord, in order that you may send word to the dolphin, to hold fast, and to not cease war against his enemies. Before mid-Lent the Lord will give him help. In truth, the kingdom belongs not to the dolphin, but to my Lord. But my Lord wills that the dolphin be made king, and have the kingdom in command notwithstanding his enemies the dolphin will be made king and it is I who will conduct him to the coronation as would be expected she was laughed at and told to go home to her mother because we have a record of them Joan's own words can be looked at critically here while she states that it is to be her task to conduct the dolphin to his coronation Her initial mission is merely for her to get word to Charles, not to be delivered to him. Likewise, she includes in the message the idea that God will send help before mid-Lent. In this first telling of her own story, she doesn't reveal that she is to be the form of that assistance. Her rejection by Baldrachort was harsh, with the squad leader suggesting to her uncle that he should take her home to be flogged. For Joan, however, returning wasn't an option, and she steadfastly refused to leave Valacours. Her parents arrived shortly after Joan and beseeched her to return home. There are even some rumors it was Joan's breaking of a marriage promise that had begun her fanciful flight. Those rumors were investigated by both the British and the French, and were found to be lacking in fact. During her first meeting with Bald Records, Joan is identified as having worn a tattered red dress. By her second meeting, she will appear dressed in men's clothing. Her cross-dressing, along with a number of other traits, has served to make Joan into a modern-day feminist icon. It is easy to see on face value why. After all, Joan showed that a woman, even a young girl, could take on monumental tasks and succeed. That being a woman wasn't an insurmountable barrier. That females could be on the battlefield, even on the front lines. And that a girl didn't need to dress or do as she was told by the men who governed her life. Still, she remains an odd choice for the feminist movement. Her involvement of which goes back to the birth of the modern feminist movement with America's suffragettes invoking her name while they campaigned for the right to vote, at the turn of the 20th century. She was plastered on their banners as the women went to battle against a patriarchal system that had granted African-American men the same right to vote 50 years earlier. That extension of basic freedoms and rights that required the American Civil War in order to merely begin to remove the notion that many Americans unjustly held that those men were the equivalent of property. Per the transitive property, which is what I have found to be the closest confirmation of claims from all my childhood math teachers that I will continue to use what they have taught, if many Americans thought that African Americans were property, but had granted them the right to vote in 1850, what truths did they hold self-evident about their wives and daughters in 1919? Those suffragettes were battling to fundamentally change the rights of women forever. Joan was riding off to battle to restore Charles, a male born to the highest levels of privilege, back to a throne that had been his original inheritance. Rather than seeking to destroy it, Joan rode into battle in order to maintain the patriarchy. Still, her adoption of male clothes was startling for the time, and therefore worth examining. After all, it was the one factor that specifically resulted in Joan's execution at the hands of the English. The clearest passage in the Bible regarding clothing and gender roles comes from the Old Testament's book of Deuteronomy, which tells Christians and Jews that, "...the women shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God." The use of the term abomination comes off pretty strong, but most Christian scholars believed that there were moments that called for exceptions, such as dressing in men's clothing in order to sneak past or escape in a dangerous situation. This Fashion Police moment is not the point of the book of Deuteronomy, however, as the chapter stresses the uniqueness of God, centralization of worship and heightened concern for the poor and disadvantaged among us. It is somewhat easy to make the argument that for the vast majority of history, women ought to be included in the section regarding the disadvantaged, and thus singled out for heightened concern. Marlon Comer, a writer for Bustle, provides us with a quick history of female wardrobes in Europe. Cross-dressing was such a concern that the Hellenic Greek civilizations had an appointed judge that literally policed women's clothing, checking how much was spent and whether women wore clothing that was appropriate for the moment and the woman's status. Plutarch reveals that it was to be expected that men leer at women, and thus it was incumbent upon girls to be the ones that cover up. The same argument has finally begun to be rejected in many schools across America as they have begun to redirect the blame to the individual conducting the inappropriate staring, rather than blaming the victim of said leering. Comer continues on to ancient Rome, a society which had two main forms of clothing. Togas were deemed appropriate for men as well as for females who were either of the plebeian working class or or if they served as prostitutes. Upper-class women wore a stola, an article of clothing worn slightly different from the male garb. Thus, in the Roman age, clothing wasn't used to identify gender. Rather, it was chiefly used to signify which class you belonged to, and whether or not you might be a prostitute. The Middle Ages continued the prior historical trends. Women were to dress for their status, which they believed was determined by God. Yvonne Seal, an assistant professor of medieval history, teaches us that the underlying assumptions about women during this period was that they were weak, extravagant, and obsessed with pleasure. The fairer sex were viewed as something that needed to be controlled because of faults inherent to their natural character. Dress codes were created in order to protect women from themselves. The city of Florence, Italy justified their draconian medieval dress code by utilizing words that are more typically reserved to describe my gender. The code stated that it was necessary in order to restrain the barbarous and irrepressible bestiality of women who, not mindful of the weakness of their nature, forgetting that they are subject to their husbands and transforming their perverse sense into a reprobate and diabolical nature, force their husbands with their honeyed poison to submit to them. At this point in time, loose hair was an outward sign of a woman willing to prostitute themselves. Thus, the presentation of their hair served as a scarlet letter, while simultaneously indicating to scoundrels which women could be abused without fear of severe legal repercussions for themselves. Women began to challenge these rules during the Hundred Years' War. Not coincidentally, this was also around the same time that women were finally allowed to learn how to read and write. Nicolessa Castanelli-Sanuti argued, somewhat unsuccessfully, that since women couldn't hold public office or receive the triumphs and spoils of war, that clothing was one of the only ways for a girl to make a statement about who she was. Thus, she claimed the right for women to dress distinctly, rather than conforming to the rules previously dictated by male legislators. Of course, Medieval Christianity was more than okay with forcing conformity upon others. By the 5th and 6th centuries, lines from the New Testament, such as, "...women submit to your husbands as to the Lord," were being interpreted in the most patriarchal ways possible. Due to her male clothing, as well as the fact that she cut her hair short, particularly around the ears, as was typical of boys, makes me suspect that at some point in the future, Joan of Arc will also be adopted as a transgender icon. To an extent, this is already happening. Q-Spirit, an online resource representing queer spirituality, calls Joan a queer icon, girl power hero, and patron saint of France. And the Gay and Lesbian Review has already asked the question, Was Joan of Arc Genetically Male? The writer of that article believes that Joan had complete andronginine insensitivity syndrome and would have been a likely candidate for gender affirmation surgery. Of course, none of the science regarding transgender individuals existed during Joan's era, but just as we know that there have always been homo and heterosexuals on this planet, Surely, there have been each of the groups that make up the LGBTQ community. Therefore, none of us can rule out such a conclusion. But to be clear, there is zero evidence regarding Joan as a transgender warrior man slash lesbian trapped in a girl's body. At the time, they were more concerned about her level of purity, as she was medically inspected at each stop of her journey to confirm that she remained a maid which served as a medieval euphemism for virgin. At least a dozen times a male doctor or clergyman inspected her privates to ensure that no walls had been broken. Had she failed such a test, she would have been deemed as an unacceptable vessel for God to work through, and her visions would have been immediately viewed as having their origin in hell rather than heaven. She also identified herself as female at each and every stop along her journey. She embraced the title of maid and signed her name with it as though it had always been a part of her. The most logical conclusion to Joan's dress habits were that she wore them for her own protection. After the maid's third approach, Baldricourt relented and instructed six men to escort her to the dolphin. There are varying theories for the man's change of heart. First is the notion that he simply grew so annoyed by her that he wanted to see her off. Second is the possibility that he converted to the cult of Joan. Stories had begun to traverse the town regarding individuals who had magically recovered from illness after she had prayed for them. Additionally, she had managed to successfully predict a shocking reversal of fortune at the Battle of Rovay. When reports came in two days after she had publicly proclaimed her vision, Baldricourt may have determined that it could only be through divine inspiration that had allowed her to know the result so quickly. The third theory is that the French were in such a dire predicament that Baldricourt was under the assumption that they had nothing left to lose, and therefore decided to roll the dice on a miracle. Before we move on with Joan's journey, two more thoughts on women's fashion that I came across while researching for this episode. First, a little bit about the pantsuit. The first female pantsuit was designed by the French designer, Marcel Rochas in 1932. The Metropolitan Museum of Art immediately placed it on display, stating that only the most unconventional designer would offer a straightforward pantsuit and only a fearless woman would wear it. Marjorie Joles, a professor of women's studies, has identified pantsuits as an essential tool for American women operating in spaces historically dominated by men because of their somewhat unique ability to hide a woman's femininity. In her mind, the pantsuit represents a desire to be treated equally within the shared space of an office a public proclamation of a desire to be treated with the equality that our founding fathers referred to as an unalienable right. Amazingly, it wasn't until 1993 when a woman proved fearless enough in order to wear pants on the floor of the United States Congress. The trailblazer was Senator Barbara McCluskey of Maryland. It was on a particularly snowy morning when she determined that slacks would be fine for her workday. Still, she had to check with the parliamentarian just in case it was against any archaic rules. While there weren't any in Washington, the French maintained a law on the books until 2013 that barred women from wearing pants without permission. There was only one exception to the rule, as it stated that women could line their legs with cloth if they were holding a bicycle handlebar or the reins of a horse. The second area of fashion that I got bogged down in involved the subject of pockets. Specifically, the fact that women's pockets are scientifically smaller than the pockets of their male counterparts. Pockets fell out of favor in female clothing in the 1800s as dresses began to slim down in order to show more of a woman's figure. The fact that men controlled all of the purse strings meant that they required pockets to hold money. Designers believed that women could do without, because they were still viewed as incapable of restraining themselves from making unnecessary purchases. Thus, the lack of pockets kept men in control of the pocketbook, while simultaneously making it easier for men to leer inappropriately at their now exposed figures. The World Wars placed women in trousers with appropriately sized pockets, in order to allow them to do the factory work that was essential for the West to win, but quickly slimmed down female fashion after the war by once again removing pockets altogether. Designer Christian Dior even proclaimed that men's pockets were for keeping things in. Women's pockets were merely there for decoration, not purpose. Today, our smartphones represent computing power that far exceeds the supercomputers of the 1970s which means that those smaller, fake pockets continue to hold back women by limiting their access to technology, something that is essential to climbing the corporate ladder. At last, Joan was on her way to meet the dolphin and fulfill St. Michael the Archangel's divine request. Before she left, the townspeople, who had grown quite fond of her, fetched what was, to our knowledge, her first set of male clothing. Rather than a desire to become a proto-feminist or to embrace some repressed or unknown gender-bending internal secret, the reason for her change in wardrobe was likely her personal security, as this slender young lady was about to embark on a 330-mile journey surrounded by six grown male soldiers that she hardly knew. During the time of feudalism, peasants never traveled outside of their towns, let alone across the country. Add to these facts that France was embroiled in a war, which meant that entire swaths of the country remained lawless. The worn red dress would offer the maid little protection, whereas the men's clothing of the era offered multiple layers and ties that could slow down an assault long enough for help to arrive. From a distance, particularly with her haircut, she likely would be mistaken for a boy. Six soldiers and a young boy traveling wouldn't attract much unwanted attention, but six soldiers escorting a woman could be a sign of extreme wealth. France's history is replete with the kidnappings of high-born women, such as Eleanor of Aquitaine. Joan successfully reached her destination without suffering from any harm, from outsiders or from those charged with her protection. Although multiple soldiers reported seeing Joan's breasts as medieval travel doesn't provide much opportunities for privacy, they claimed that there was no sexual arousal at the site. Interestingly enough, in interviews, the men who reported that they weren't affected by her bare chest immediately backtracked and complimented her breasts. You know, just to make sure that no other soldier thought that something was off about them, before then reassuring the chroniclers that they weren't moved to behave badly. Such testimonials again served to reinforce the spiritual aspect of Joan a young woman who was able to travel safely among strange men who likely had committed foul acts prior to their interactions with her. The maid didn't arrive at the Armanach seat of power out of nowhere. A royal messenger was sent ahead to inform them of her heavenly journey. There were also a number of heaven-sent warnings for those who chose to listen to the signs. Yolande, the woman who was presently bankrolling Charles' efforts for his throne, was a known believer in messages from God. Her parents had previously entertained the peasant prophet Marie Robin, who had claimed that heaven had told her that a maid in armor would save France at its time of need. Worse, she warned the king that if her warnings regarding the papal schism weren't heeded, that France would be overcome by the forces of the Antichrist. Still, another prophecy floated around the capital, which claimed that France will be lost by a woman and saved by a virgin from the oak forests of Lorraine. Those same forests just happened to be directly connected to Joan's own hometown. Incredibly, Merlin even got involved in prophesying Joan's arrival. In the 12th century, the perhaps real wizard prophesied that a virgin ascends the back of the archers and hides the flower of her virginity. Thus, Charles's court in Chenon was already primed for Joan's arrival, and as we discussed in the prior episode, the Armagnacs had just lost another major battle, and Charles was firmly beginning to contemplate giving up on his cause. But the fact that he's desperate doesn't make his listening to Joan unique. After all, there are plenty of desperate men who don't do stupid things, such as handing their army over to an untrained girl who claims to hear voices sent from above. The Dolphin's advisors encouraged their lord to put Joan to a series of tests in order to determine whether she was what she claimed to be. Despite what we might think, Charles did in fact have a lot to lose in siding with Joan, not least of which was his royal reputation. Living out the rest of your days in exile was one thing. Being remembered as the buffoon who tried to win a war by turning his army over to a teenage sheepherder would be something completely different once the historians turned their attention to writing about the day's events. Charles was among those who believed that God remained on their side, but was stubbornly punishing them for past transgressions. Accordingly, if he ordered his men to follow a false prophet, he risked further incurring God's wrath, perhaps beyond what the steadfast Armanacs could withstand. Before seeing the would-be king, Joan was put to a series of theological tests which spanned the questions that are key to successful, expansive writing—who, what, why, to whom, what kind, and whence she came from. Two ladies of the court were brought in to examine whether or not she remained a virgin. Next, clerics questioned her on her faith and her habits. In published accounts, they found her both devout and virtuous. She responded plainly to the questions regarding why she had come to Shannon, telling them all about the visions as well as her mission to lead the Dolphins' troops into battle, lift the siege of Orleans, and to escort Charles to Reims so that he could be properly anointed as king. The scholars were looking for a sign that she was indeed sent from God. They failed to find one but they also failed to find any reason that would rule out the possibility that she was heaven-sent. Thus, Joan moved on to the third test that had been prepared prior to her arrival, a little game of find the imposter. In today's world, we can all picture what the major world leaders look like, particularly the man or woman in charge of our own country. But prior to the internet and cable television, heck, this is prior to the invention of the printing press. Fuzzy descriptions of our leaders, which emphasized feelings, such as awe-inspiring or impressive, were the best that could be expected. Joan was directed to speak to the Count of Claremont who was mischievously seated upon the dolphin's prestigious throne. She politely declined to speak with him, as he was not the true dolphin. The court complimented her on the discovery of their subterfuge and then presented her to the quote-unquote real dolphin, who happened to be stationed among the royal esquires. Joan again failed to fall for the ruse. She called it out and then proceeded to recognize the real Charles, who was stationed among the assembled crowd. Upon reaching the dolphin, she gracefully bowed to him. Despite her passing all of the tests, the dolphin remained skeptical. He was more than willing to utilize Joan as a gift of propaganda, immediately ordering his scribes to write and disseminate poems that linked Joan to past prophecies regarding virgin warrior women but he was unwilling to hand a novice and a woman at that command of his limited and demoralized forces. It was Joan that stepped forward to provide the final test, asking the king to send to the town of Saint Catherine de Fiosto to fetch a sword that lay hidden within the church coffer at the high altar. Upon their arrival, the troops found a secret compartment that supposedly had not been opened in more than twenty years. The sword was immediately believed to hold holy properties, much like it was believed of Arthur's Excalibur or Charlemagne sword, which was named joyous or joyful in the English language. Whispers began among the theologians about the fact that St. Catherine, one of the voices she claimed to hear, was the patron of virgins, and was regularly depicted as carrying a sword. This was finally enough to convince Charles, or to at least convince him that he had nothing left to lose. He commissioned a fine suit of armor for the slender girl, gifted her a white horse which was a part of a number of the prophecies, designed a banner for her, and assigned to her a squire, two pages, and a personal chaplain who would see to the maid's religious needs. From this point forward, Joan's male garments would have been necessitated by her task. Women's clothing didn't allow for the strapping together of pieces of plate armor. To fit within the breastplate, she would be obligated to tape down her breasts. Her short hair would allow her head to fit within the helmet. After all, anything flowing outward could be yanked on and result in death on the battlefield. Still, the armor had a feminine feel, as it was specifically designed to single Joan out and emphasize her figure as a woman. After all, what was the point in hiding a prophesized talisman, or perhaps woman that was sent by God? Joan no longer dressed like a man to hide, but rather to fit into her new role, much like the purpose of a pantsuit in today's society. Although Charles was convinced, he deeply feared that others wouldn't join him in his belief, Thus, he brought in Jean-Charlier de Gerson, the chancellor of the University of Paris, to interrogate Joan's divine visions from a scholarly perspective. Gerson thoughtfully regarded the evidence and presented six arguments in favor of Joan's claims and six against. In the scholar's mind, this would allow the greatest minds in France to determine the truth for themselves. His arguments were sent to each stronghold within Armanac territory on the same day that a letter dictated by the maid was sent to all corners of English France, ordering all Englishmen to abandon the French mainland or face death at her hands. While word of her arrival was being sent to every corner of the kingdom, Joan rode off in order to fulfill her first promise, the liberation of the siege of Orleans. We went over the battle for Orleans in the prior episode, so I'll just provide a quick recap of the events here. Prior to her arrival to the besieged city, Joan had never seen a battle. She used the weeks of marching to learn how to move and ride within her new armor. Upon arrival, she immediately set her soldiers to one course. Attack, attack, and then attack. Over the next six days, the French Armagnacs under her command emerged victorious in four consecutive battles. Joan was personally injured in the final two, first stepping on a metal stake, before then taking an arrow between her neck and shoulder. After first faltering, she rose up, roared at her soldiers the phrase, In the name of God, and charged back into the thick of the fight. On the next day, the British soldiers lined up against her forces paused for an hour to contemplate their options before abandoning the field to the maid. Joan had told all that would listen that she would end the six month long siege of Orleans. It took her a mere four days for her to accomplish her task. To the Armagnacs, this became the sign that Joan was telling them the truth. God had finally ended their 85-year-long punishment, finally sending them their long-sought-after savior. The elderly theologian Jean Gerson personally wrote and sent out a new pamphlet stating for any who remained on the sidelines that this deed was done by God. Joan's behavior following the siege suggests that she wasn't surprised at the swiftness of her victory. Three days after Orleans, she rode beside the Bastard of Orleans, one of her most stalwart supporters, to meet with the Dauphin. Rather than celebrating their reversal in fortunes, Joan informed him that there was no time to rest, as her mission wasn't complete until she had escorted him to Reims, the site of the holy oil that all French kings since Charlemagne had been consecrated with. Joan requested more troops and money in order to sweep aside the British garrisons that stood in opposition to her and the task that had been laid at her feet. It took a month for new troops to be mustered as no one in their wildest dreams had imagined how quickly the siege of Orleans would have ended. She had freed the city on May 8, 1429. On June 11th, she began to lay siege to Jarjouk. Unlike in Orleans, the British reacted earnestly to the threat, shifting one of their greatest commanders, Sir John Fastolf, to Jarjou with the necessary reinforcements. Joan was notified by the military experts to retreat, but she brushed aside their advice and ordered an immediate assault of the fortress. I can only imagine the look of disgust on the faces of the grizzled veterans as they were overruled by the upstart teen whom they served. There was good reason for the caution that had been counseled, for if the strike stalled, the French forces would be trapped between the walls and fast fresh reinforcements. Orleans repeated itself at Jarjou. Joan waited until it appeared to all those involved as though the French were beaten before she then charged headfirst into the ditch bearing her personal standard. In Orleans, she took an arrow to the shoulder. Here, she was blindsided with a potentially fatal hit by a stone thrown from a soldier atop the wall. She again collapsed, causing the entire battlefield to hold its collective breath before she rose up and proclaimed at the top of her lungs that God was with them. After four hours of intense hand to hand fighting, the battle was won, hostages were taken, and Fastoff, who had arrived too late to intervene, retreated to a more defensible position. Next was Mon. Joan attacked, first taking the only access point in order to keep the city's defenders within the walls before besieging the nearby town of Bugensi on June 15th. Falstaff again threatened to come down in order to wreck Joan's plans. Here came perhaps Joan's greatest miracle, The Count of Richemont, the man who was technically in charge of Charles' armies, but had over the course of his two-year appointment never fought anyone from the English-French side, got off his arse and marched 1,000 fresh troops to aid Joan. There is no divine intervention at work here. Rather, Richemont witnessed someone who wasn't him obtaining intense amounts of fame and needed to get in on the action before his star waned in the maid's accumulated glory. Count Richemont arrived at the siege accompanied by his official biographer, who traveled around with his sire in the same way that Monty Python's Sir Robin's minstrels hovered around him in order to spread the word of his glory. According to that biographer, Joan knelt at the Count's feet in homage. Richemont ordered her to rise, proclaiming that if you are from God, I fear you not at all, because God knows well my good intentions. If you are from the devil, I fear you even less. Historian Helen Castor believes that the meeting was slightly less in his favor. She tells us that Joan forced the man to publicly take a solemn oath to her that he would serve the king faithfully, before then allowing him to fight alongside her forces. The British tactician Falstaff balked at the sight of Richemont's extra 1,000 men and subsequently withdrew his forces. The town of Bougensi surrendered without a fight on June 18th. The English could see the path that Joan was carving. There was no subterfuge with Joan, merely a divine carving up of a direct path to Reims. The city of Pate was next in line, and Falstaff prepared an ambush for the suddenly potent French army. Castor explains that Falstaff took up a defensive formation with several hundred archers holding a forward position, a narrow pass between two woods, to protect the main body of the army behind them. The familiar but formidable plan was that a storm of English arrows would take the Armagnacs by surprise. The troops were almost in place when suddenly a stag erupted out of the woods and plunged into the English ranks, precipitating a great shout of confusion and fear, just as the moment when advance riders from the French forces were approaching with an earshot. The animal had given away the English position before the archers had finished planting their sharpened stakes in the ground. With a roar, the Maid's soldiers charged into their position, sharpened steel meeting flesh and bone. In the end, Faustoff turned his horse and fled. After seven weeks and six major victories, Joan's legend grew exponentially. The Duke of Orleans, while still a captive of the English, began sending her gifts of robes and short jackets emblazoned with his house's colors. Charles elevated her family to nobility, an exceptionally rare act. She was granted land and titles that would ensure generational wealth, even if she never lifted another finger for the cause that she had thus far appeared devoted to. But wealth can change any man or woman particularly unexpected wealth. But she didn't get the one thing that she requested, namely for the dolphin to forgive his prior anger directed towards Count Richemont. Joan did manage to get a pardon for the Chancellor of War, but Richemont was not welcome at court nor for Charles's coronation. This prodigal son wasn't yet to be welcomed home by his lord. Reims was within sight and the king successfully crossed into enemy territory for the first time in eight years. If this story were a video game, it was apparent that Joan was now marching on the game's final, Big Bad. She had promised to relieve the city of Orleans in order to escort Charles to Reims. Men were now flocking to the Armagnac cause, signing up off of the sidelines in order to serve the crown as loyal soldiers. This occurred despite the fact that Joan ran the tightest of tight ships. She outlawed all prostitution slash camp followers unless the soldiers agreed to marry their lovers. There was to be no pillaging or assaults on the region's inhabitants. Her armies even paid fairly for all of the resources that they consumed. It is possible that this is merely propaganda hidden within the first-hand accounts, but all of the contemporary sources agree that the men abided, accepting the fact that they were on a holy mission rather than one that had been ordered by mere men. The king's court set off for Reims on June 29th, sending letters to the towns along the way that all would be forgiven if they chose to now return to the fold of the true France, his Armanac France. On July 5th, they arrived at Troyes, disappointed to find out that the men and women of the city had already grown accustomed to their British overlords the city's gates remained barred to Joan and Charles. But the citizens of Troy's were willing to talk. They sent out a friar named Brother Richard. For ten days in April, Richard had preached warnings about the coming of the Antichrist. He was such an effective speaker that the citizens of Troy's had immediately burned all of their chessboards, dice, cards, and every kind of game that can give rise to anger and searing. Fearful that such actions would bring upon them the wrath of the devil. Joan met with Brother Richard, who became immediately convinced that he was in the direct presence of God. The friar became both a follower and a herald of her holiness. Despite this, the garrison of Troyes remained stubborn and wouldn't open the doors. But the people had other ideas. They believed in Brother Richard, who in turn believed in Joan the Maid. Their hearts told them to trust their instincts regarding their friar. The people also listened to their stomach, which informed them that they were quite hungry, as well as their noses, which clearly identified that the Armanacs had far fresher food than what remained in their city's dwindling stores. The Commanders in the Armanac Army Joan, despite her recent promotion into the aristocracy, remained stubbornly a captain within the armed forces, urged caution and retreat. Joan chastised them for not immediately attacking, which was her main move. She claimed that the voices from God had clearly stated that within two days of fighting, she could take the city. Still, the commanders hesitated. Four days into the siege, rather than the two that Joan had foreseen, the people of Troyes broke the guards' resistance and surrendered the city without a fight. The town of Chalons was the next to switch sides in favor of the Dauphin. After flipping, the town's leaders personally wrote to Reims, who responded by immediately sending out a delegation which formally offered the city to Charles. The next day, the prince, whose birthright had been usurped, triumphantly entered the Cathedral of Reims in order to be anointed with the Holy Ampula. They didn't yet have the sword or crown, choosing to make do with a new temporary crown. But Charles knelt a dolphin, and arose as the rightfully anointed king of France something that Henry, the six-year-old king of England, France, had never bothered with, despite the fact that he had successfully held the land, sacred oil, sword, and crown. Despite her own celebrity far eclipsing Charles's own, Joan knelt at the king's feet, loudly proclaiming for all to hear, noble king, God's will is done, before she then succumbed to tears of joy. His coronation didn't magically end the war and heal the nation. In fact, France could never be whole until the Armagnacs and the Burgundies set aside their personal feud. Duke Philip of Burgundy was invited, but chose not to attend Charles's coronation. Joan attempted to end the feud, but her letters were ignored and Philip actively signaled that he remained loyal to the British by attending to the needs of the Duke of Bedford in Paris, during the precise moment that Charles ascended. While in Paris, the head of the Burgundy faction extracted an increase in the hardship fees that were paid from the crown to his coffers. It doesn't require an investigation to understand that this was merely bribe money, ensuring that Philip's house remained on the side of the English. Joan's forces again began to march this time towards Paris, a city that was preparing for the arrival of a demon warrior whom they believed had been sent by Satan himself. They began to strengthen the city's walls and added artillery positions in all directions. They redirected afresh 250 men-at-arms and 2,500 archers who had been designated for assignment in Bohemia. While the English dug in towns across northern France, began to shift their loyalties. The further the maid advanced, the more the garrisons were forced to demand reinforcements to dampen rebellions. Soon the acting regent, the Duke of Bedford, felt that he had no choice but to abandon Paris in favor of the former British stronghold of Normandy, the hearth of the modern British people, and home of William the Conqueror. Then came one of the most stunning moments of the Hundred Years' War. Charles and Philip agreed to a temporary truce. The two families whose personal feud had broken France to such a point that the British were able to worm their way into the heart of the country finally agreed to set aside their differences. Namely, that each house had organized the assassinations of the heads of their famed houses. On August 23rd, Joan's forces arrived in St. Denis in order to collect the traditional crown and sword of the French monarchs. Paris was a mere four miles away, and Joan demanded predictably that the united French army attack with the utmost haste. But the organized defenses of Paris were described as monumental, and on a scale that was far beyond anything that she had faced before. She got her wish on September 8th. The conquest of Paris began with Joan the Maid performing her greatest hits, as she risked her life by pushing into the ditch in order to urge her men to fight in the name of Jesus. Her figure, gleaming armor, and personal standard ensured that she was immediately targeted by arrows and stones from the superior vantage of the defenders on the city walls. Her recklessness in prior assaults had seen her rewarded with a spike through her foot, a stone thrown against her head, and an arrow that jutted out of her collarbone. During this outing, she added a crossbow bolt in her thigh to expand her growing list of wounds. This time, the wound was not worth the results, as the superior defenses of Paris held. For the first time in her illustrious year-long military initiation, Joan had to be dragged from the ditch and carried to safety along with her forces as they retreated. This was the first time that an oppositional force had managed to make it through the night against the Maid of Orleans. Castor explains eloquently what happened next, stating that the Maid had had her chance, but Paris had not fallen, and the imminent arrival in the capital of the Duke of Bedford's troops made it all the more certain that it was time to take stock, to pursue the peace with Burgundy that would unite France against the English invaders. A truce that had been agreed with the Burgundies to last until Christmas, and in a time of truce, as Charles explained in a letter to the people of Reims a few days later, the king could not keep an undeployed army in the field without risking the total destruction of the countryside across which they ranged. Privately, too, he knew that his cash-strapped regime did not yet have the money to pursue a full-scale campaign against the English in Normandy. He would therefore return to the lore, leaving the Count of Clermont to hold the lands north of the Seine, and prepare himself and his forces for the new year to come. In other words, after just one setback, the newly crowned King Charles was abandoning all of the land that Joan had fought and bled for. Castor describes her as distraught, a woman who felt betrayed. It now became clear that Charles' previous showering her with aristocratic titles was as much to sidetrack her as they were to honor her. The new king was content, despite the fact that Joan hadn't yet fully accomplished her God-given mission. The original inhabitants of the French, the Franks, claimed to be descendants of refugees from the ancient Trojan War, whose story was shared by the poet Homer. The Iliad, or Wrath of Achilles, tells of a war that directly involved the ancient Greek gods, many of whom regularly switched sides throughout the conflict, sometimes on a day-to-day basis. In the same way that the rebelling Miley Cyrus didn't believe in modesty, Jones Christian Church didn't believe in the ancient Olympian gods. Their first commandment ensured that the faith remained monotheistic, but they did believe that their god often behaved in the same manner as the Greek deities, particularly how god often switched sides in the midst of war. Jean Gerson, the theologist and chancellor of the University of Paris, warned that the party having justice or god on their side must take care not to render the help of heaven useless through disbelief or ingratitude, for God changes his sentence as a result of a change in merit, even if he does not change his counsel. The internal finger-pointing began almost immediately, with Charles privately telling his counselors that the maid had overextended herself and should have heeded the advice of France's more seasoned commanders. Joan believed that her failure at the walls had occurred because her king hadn't shared her conviction that with God's help, victory was certain. In her mind, it was Charles' lack of belief that had resulted in her first defeat. But Joan had wedged herself in between a rock and a hard place. She had repeatedly chosen to submit to whom she proclaimed to be God's chosen king, Thus, as Charles turned tail and retreated south for the season, she followed obediently. A chronicler of the time summarized it justly, and thus was the will of the maid and of the king's army broken. The Duke of Bedford, the Regent of France in the name of King Henry, began to punish cities in the north which had switched sides at the coming of the maid. He also reconnected Duke Philip and the Burgundies by facilitating treaties that would once again pull them into the orbit of England. Showing that he finally understood the role that tradition played within the borders of France, he even managed to get Henry anointed in the now abandoned city of Reims. Despite Joan's unforeseen arrival on the scene, the Hundred Years' War was destined to continue. In fact, the still intact England-France government decided to open up a new front, co-opting the scholars of the University of Paris to petition Rome to arrest Joan the Maid on the charge of heresy. While the theologian's pen scribbled, Joan spent the next few months fighting small-scale skirmishes designed to keep cities in line with Charles's command but she seemed to have lost some of the fire that had blazed a trail to Rheims. Adrift, she began to expand her influence beyond her original mission in a form of prophetic mission creep. She even waded into the political war that continued to rage during the papal schism, hinting that the voices of her angels would soon get back to her with an answer as to whom was the righteous pope. She even suggested that once she was done with the British she might head to faraway Bohemia to fight the heretical Hussites. Her success soon bred copycats. Women who claimed to also speak to voices sent from heaven were brought to her, each time to be summarily dismissed by the maid as a charlatan. Mercifully, the ceasefire came to an end, and Joan was immediately back in the field, this time to relieve the city of Compiègne. From besiegement by the Burgundy army. With the maneuver, the loose Armanac Burgundy detente had come to a fateful end. Joan felt at ease with the task and performed her role in the same manner that she always had. Attacking early on in the morning of May 22nd, she passionately urged all of her troops forward, running into the ditch, imploring her men ever onward in the name of Jesus. Her troops were winning quite easily, but a quick glance over her shoulder revealed that a second previously undetected Burgundy force had formed up directly behind their position, cutting off all hope for escape. Joan was caught between the city defenders and the enemy. As she contemplated her situation, one imagines that she would have gladly accepted the help of a wrecking ball that could clear her path. Alas, though, even a wrecking ball has to eventually find its resting point, a point where it no longer poses any threat to the establishment around it. As one would expect, she challenged her fate, but was soon violently ripped from her saddle, she did the only thing that she could in her position and offered the Burgundy Captain her formal submission as a proper knight would. Her moment in the spotlight had come to an abrupt and unjust end. Our last episode in this series on Joan of Arc will recap her captivity, trial, and her legacy. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowery at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.